0: All right, we are going back to the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter number 5. The last time I preached, which was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, it turns out that I bit off more than I could chew, Um, and I said we were going to do Daniel 1 through 5, and then I couldn't quite do it. Uh, And so, uh, Blake asked if this week I was going to go ahead and do Isaiah 1 through 44, Um, and I decided that was a bad idea. So um, we're going back to Daniel. I know someone else said, hey, whatever happened to Colossians? You know, I I preached that other message uh, a couple weeks ago just because it was on my heart and it was on my mind, and I was hoping to be helpful. Um, And I thought, since we're here, uh, let's just go ahead and finish these uh, these chapters. Really, Daniel's chapters 1 through 6 are a unit anyway before you get into um, a lot of Daniel's prophecies. This is the narrative um, of events within his life that really are all pointing in one direction. Um, and that is to the sovereignty of God, the God who rules over all. So, uh, in essence, this is part two. Um, we, um, we love preaching verse by verse here, um, but it's even more than that. We enjoy going um, consecutive exposition. So, that's our normal practice, and every time I preach, I'm reminded that there's good reasons that that's our normal practice. It's hard to just jump into a, a, a topical message, which is even why I started Colossians, is to have something that I could return to again and again. Um, and so I'm looking forward to um, what is the norm here, which is to be able to work through an entire book or entire section. But for us to be able to take Daniel um, from chapter 1 through chapter 6, I think will be a, a comprehensive unit for us to, um, to grapple with. And I hope this is helpful as we really come back to, like I said, the same theme, um, that, that there is a God who is over all. He is ruling over both nations and individuals. Uh, There is a God who is in control of human history over circumstances. There is a God who is in control over life and death. There is a God who is in control over both the good and the bad. And the God of our Bible is a God that nothing happens outside of his understanding and really outside of his control. This is the God of the Bible. Maybe you weren't here for a couple of weeks ago when we worked through these first couple uh, chapters, but that stands out in the book of Daniel in, in these opening sections over and over again, that God is in heaven and he does everything that he pleases. God is the one who sets up kings and God is the one who takes down kings. Uh, God is the one who sovereignly decided to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, from the fiery furnace. This is a God who is not limited in power. Um, he is all powerful while at the same time being all good. And I started off my last message um, as a bit of a downer, Uh, and maybe some of you, like I said, were here for that. Um, I I talked about the threats to religious liberty, the rise of the LGBT agenda, and some election woes that are on us. Uh, And since that very cheery introduction, uh, and since that message, there have been two high profile shootings by police of African Americans. Since that message, there's been the deadliest attack on U.S. law enforcement since 9-11, as five Dallas police officers were shot and nine more were wounded. Since that message, three police officers were killed in Baton Rouge. Since that message, an Islamic terrorist killed over 80 people in France. Now, our our need to to be able to understand the God of the Bible and then look at the world around us has never been greater. Our need to be able to interpret world events through a biblical lens is, is really under assault from, from every side. You have these events of, of death and terror and really uh, the loss of any life is a, is a sadness. It is, it is awful for any human made in the image of God uh, to die. We, we also um, would be wrong to miss what an attack on society, what that is when people like police officers are killed. Not just, not just a person made in God's image as serious and as sobering as that is, but really a threat to even the, the order of our society. These are, these are dark and serious days. It's not, just, it's not just these events of death and terror, however. There's other things going on in our world, Um, In the name of justice, I I saw um, on the news that uh, the NBA has just decided to pull its all-star game from Charlotte because of North Carolina's laws on gender-specific bathrooms. I don't know if you've thought about this or not when you say that doesn't have anything in common with the killings that you mentioned earlier. There's actually a common thread. Have, Have you thought about this? There's a common thread in the stuff that's going on in the news today. And, and here's what it is. There's a common thread that, that humanity cries out for justice. They don't necessarily cry out the right way. They don't necessarily cry out consistently. But humanity wants justice. Think about it. There, there was not a whole host of people that said, oh, that... That terror attack on France, I, I just, it's just too bad that that guy was thwarted and that those police officers stopped him when they did. There are certainly some Islamists who are upset that he didn't get any further. Um, but the world looked at that, and with revulsion, the world in general said, this was unjust and this was evil. What, what happened in France was evil and it was wrong and, and it should be stopped, right? Right? There are, there are people like those who are leaders, both within our nation and apparently within the NBA, that have looked at things like a, a law in regards to gender-specific bathrooms and they've said, that's unjust. We need to try to overturn this. We need to try to stop this, right? There are those within the African-American community that have said, there's injustice happening systemically. There's even several men who decided that their idea of justice was then to go and kill police officers, right? It's, it's a pursuit of justice. Whether it's wrongly motivated or whether it's rightly understood, humanity wants justice. And the reality is that we cannot have or understand justice apart from the character of God. And what Daniel 5 is going to show us is that there is a God who is sovereign over justice. He is sovereign over judgment. And Daniel chapter 6 is going to bookend that by telling us that he's not just sovereign over judgment and justice, but he's also sovereign over rescue. What you haven't seen in the news, um, and, and what would encourage our hearts so much more than to think about these dark tidings, what you haven't seen in the news is all of the sinners who, since the last time I preached, have turned to Christ for salvation. That has not made the front page of the newspaper. There are missionaries who have faithfully given the gospel for these several weeks, and God has been pleased to to give fruit to to their work. There there have been those who, in these last weeks since I've preached, have been caught in addiction, but they have found victory. There are children who have put their faith in Christ, and, and those kind of things don't hit the... The national news media. We don't see them, but there is a God who is just as sovereign over the rescue of sinners as He is justice and judgment. What is happening above all these circumstances, whether we notice or not, are the actions of a good and a powerful God. There is a God who determines what is right and what is wrong. There is a God who made the principles of right and wrong, that they might, those principles might be rejected or they might be ignored, but they cannot be invalidated. There is a God who determines that sin will have consequences. There is a God who alone provides true justice. The reality is that you and I are poor judges of what justice is. What is the right punishment for unjust murder? What does justice look like in this life? Or what is just in eternity? Who are those that should be forgiven and who should be condemned? All these questions are beyond our ability to decide and certainly beyond our ability to enforce. But thankfully, they are not out of the control of a sovereign God. And that's the God that you and I should be worshiping this morning. When you get to Daniel chapter number 5, Daniel is going to move seamlessly from Nebuchadnezzar's praise of this great God to Belshazzar. Look with me. At the end of Daniel chapter number four, and this is where we ended, Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 37, praised and extolled and honored the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And what are the next two words? King Belshazzar. You're, you're supposed to connect the dots from, from the end of chapter 4 to those first two words, King Belshazzar. Those who walk in pride he is able to humble, King Belshazzar. You see, a lot of times we hit chapter breaks in our Bible and we start thinking it's a whole new subject. It's a whole, this is intentionally put together with it's a seamless transition to the words King Belshazzar. Because what we're going to see in chapter 5 is that King Belshazzar is one of those who is proud that God is able to humble Because God is sovereign over justice and over judgment. And while the story of Nebuchadnezzar is one, um, really amazingly, of hope of a pagan king who who started to grasp the character of the one true God, King Belshazzar is a story of condemnation. Let's see what happens In, in verse number one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So here's Belshazzar. Um, he has actually taken, um, taken over the kingdom of Babylon. He's a, he's a co-regent, so he's actually serving um, along with his father. Um, it says his father was Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in this case, it doesn't mean his immediate, uh, his immediate father, but it's father by relation. So it's probably his grandfather. All right. So when you read father, don't think, oh, Nebuchadnezzar was the dad and then he had Belshazzar. It's probably more his grandfather. Um, and so Belshazzar has this feast. And so he makes this command as they're feasting to bring the vessels of gold and silver that have been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. You say, uh, no big deal, right? Uh, wrong. Really, really big deal. Because notice what he wants to do um, with these vessels of gold and silver. Um, they bring them in, and it says in verse 3, the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. You say, is that the big deal? We still haven't gotten to the big deal yet. It's not just that they were using um, these vessels of gold and silver. What they were doing was blasphemous, blasphemously worshiping with these items. It says in verse 4, they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They took what had been sacred, what had been used for the worship of God, for the worship of Jehovah. They took these things that had been sacred, and, and then they began to worship their own false idols with, with these same objects. And in fact, they were probably celebrating the fact that, that they were, their gods were stronger than the god who couldn't even protect his, his vessels of gold and of silver. Their god was stronger, so they thought than Israel's God. And so they were worshiping. They weren't just drinking. It wasn't just a feast. They were worshiping. And immediately in verse number five, the fingers of a human hand appeared. And this is shocking. Uh, this, is, this is the biggest downer that has ever happened in a party ever, right? Um, the fingers of a human hand appear, right? And now remember, this is a day and age in which there is, no, there is no PowerPoint. They're not used to like looking up and seeing things projected on the wall, Right? They're sitting, they're feasting, they're drinking. All of a sudden, fingers appear. Right? No, no body. It's just these fingers. All right, This is bizarre. Um, th- these fingers appear, and they write on the plaster opposite the lampstand. Probably is stressing that just because it means that it was right by the light. so they could, Everyone could clearly see this writing. It was right by the light. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And look what happens to Belshazzar. His color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Isn't that a fantastic description of just the complete terror that Belshazzar is feeling at this point? His color changes, his knees are knocking together. He's, here he is, this king, and he's terrified by this hand. And so he calls loudly to his magicians and his enchanters, and he says, listen, whoever can read whatever is written on here, I will reward you fantastically. He says, I, I will clothe you with purple. I will give you a chain of gold around your neck. You'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. Right? Again, why, why would he say third ruler? We assume it's because he was a co-ruler, right? So he and his dad were the rulers, so he couldn't say, you'll be second in command because he already had two kings. So he said, you'll be the third ruler, right? This is, the, this is the highest position he could possibly promote anyone to. So all the king's wise men come in, but none of them could read the writing or make known to king the interpretation. And uh, I was kind of thinking that Belshazzar is kind of like a chameleon, because if you look in verse number nine, his color is going to change again, right? This guy keeps changing colors. Uh, King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Everything has just come to a screeching halt. Right? Can you imagine all these people are drinking and toasting their gods and there's probably some instruments playing and all of a sudden this hand comes and it writes and the room is just gone, just dead quiet. And everyone is confused. What does this mean? What, what was that that I just saw? And, and what is this writing on the wall? And nobody knows and nobody could figure it out. Until along comes the queen, who we think was probably the, the queen mother. She comes and, and she hears the words of the king and his lords. She comes into the hall and she says... Um, O king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your color change. All right, There it is again. That color change just keeps happening. All right, um, She says, there's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, she says, um, this guy was able to interpret dreams and explain riddles, and his name is Daniel. So let Daniel be called, and he'll show the interpretation. So verse 13, they go and they get Daniel. So Daniel's brought in before the king. And the king answers, and and he he tells Daniel, look, I know who you are. You're Daniel. You're one of the exiles. Um, I've heard that you have the spirit of gods. I I hear that you have excellent wisdom. Now, all these other guys have been unable to tell me what is going on here, he says in verse number 15. They couldn't show the interpretation of the matter, but I've heard, Daniel, that you can give interpretations and solve problems. It's very flattering to Daniel. Daniel, nobody else, the, the wisest men in my whole kingdom can't do it, But you can, Daniel. At least that's what I hear. Um, And so if you can do it, if you can read the writing and tell me its interpretation, he repeats, you're going to be clothed with purple and a chain of gold, and you'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. And what Daniel does next is really quite shocking, and it's really quite rude. What Daniel does is he just skips over all of the normal courtesy that should have happened in this kind of king's court. And what he says is something that no doubt the king has never heard anyone speak to him in, in this way before ever. Right, no one else would have dared be this impudent. Listen, look what Daniel says in verse 17. He says to the king, "Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another." Right? Now that is not the humble, soft-spoken kind of answer that this king is used to hearing. You you know what? Your gifts and your rewards, you can just keep them, king. All right? This is Daniel starting out immediately extremely confrontational. All right? Um, this is unusually blunt. Um, this, this is missing all of the you know, politically correct politeness that is, that is expected. And, he, and so he, he, he cuts right through all of this manners and all this politeness and he says, I will read the writing to the king and I will make known to you the interpretation here's what's going on, Daniel says. And all of a sudden, Daniel starts lifting the king from what the king thought was going on and, and the king's understanding of the world around him. And all of a sudden, Daniel says, actually, there is a God who is over all that you have not even acknowledged. And what Daniel does for, for Belshazzar is the same thing he needs to do for us this morning, which is remind us that while we zoom in on this newspaper headline and, and this happening in our world, what we can so easily forget is there is a God who is over all. Because what, what Daniel says, Belshazzar, is, um, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Okay, do you notice that? And I know I stressed that in this last message, but there it is again. It is the, it is the most high God who gave Nebuchadnezzar kingship. It is the most high God who gave Nebuchadnezzar his greatness and his glory and his majesty. Nebuchadnezzar was not a self-made man. He was a God-made man. And I say that understanding um, even the fact that he was a pagan, cruel, vindictive king. God was still the one that was over it all. God was over it all to even get to Belshazzar, something that Belshazzar had, had completely misunderstood. From, from history, what we find out um, is that Belshazzar didn't become uh, co-king um, until after Nebuchadnezzar died. He, Nebuchadnezzar had a son, and his son got assassinated. And the guy that assassinated Nebuchadnezzar's son then became the king, but then he died after four years. He also had a son, and guess what? His son was also assassinated. And then along came Belshazzar, um, who was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and Belshazzar's dad to become to become co-kings, all right, or great-grandson, or however that would work out, right? So we're talking a lot of things have happened since Nebuchadnezzar, and God is the one that even throughout all of this conflict in Babylon and and all of these political um, um, workings and inner workings, God is the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar greatness, and then he is also the one that raised up Belshazzar. Verse number 19 Daniel reminds Belshazzar, because of the greatness that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. You notice that? It's because of the greatness that God gave him. Where did Nebuchadnezzar's government come from? It came from God. He was the one that gave it to him. And and Daniel reminds Belshazzar that, that whomever he would, Nebuchadnezzar killed. And whomever he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? In verse number 20, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Do you remember? We, we looked at that, how Nebuchadnezzar, God actually uh, made him go crazy. And for seven years, he 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 acted like an animal. He, he ate grass and his hair grew long and his fingernails grew long. Um, He was insane, essentially, until, verse 21, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Okay? We should already know this because of what we studied in Daniel, but Daniel's making a point to this next king, Belshazzar. He's saying, Belshazzar, you should have learned something from all of that history. Right? So maybe history is not your favorite subject, um, but we are supposed to be learning from watching God at work. All right? and, and so look what he says. He says, Belshazzar, verse 22, you, his son Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Because God is sovereign over all things, we should humble our hearts before him. And even Belshazzar was supposed to have learned that lesson. And in verse 23, he says, Daniel says, But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and of gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And here's the amazing thing about idol worship, any idol. Uh, whether it's these actual silver, gold, and bronze idols that they're worshiping or our own idols of money or fame or popularity. These are things that, that cannot see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. You see the contrast? There's idols that are false, and there's a God who holds your very breath. And his hands, and all of your ways are under his control, and you have failed to honor him. What Belshazzar was doing was unjust. What he was doing was wrong. And there is a God who is sovereign over judgment and sovereign over justice, who was not unaware of what was going on in Babylon. He he hadn't he hadn't gone to sleep and, and missed everything that was happening, and even the evil that was happening. God was well aware, and and he had it all in hand. Get it? That was a pun. Uh, Back to the hand. Verse 24, from his presence, the hand was sent. Now, you're going to have to ask somebody else what exactly that means. Because what does it mean that from God's presence, the hand was sent? Is there a hand that's hanging out in God's presence? Um, I don't. I don't know. I'm not really sure what that means other than from his presence, the hand was sent. All right. So, yes, at one point there was a hand in God's presence, apparently, because he sent it. All right. And this writing was inscribed. And this was the writing that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Now, um, those are are words that um, are actually relatively easy to understand when it's written down like this. So there's a lot of people that have said, why did all of these wise men, why could they not figure out um, what, this, what these words are? These, these are all words that are connected really to monetary terms, to terms of, of weight, all right? Um, and, and any Hebrew student or any Aramaic student um, would be able to, to know what these words mean. So why couldn't they figure it out? Well, there could be a couple reasons. Um, it, it could be they, they didn't understand it because the way... Um, Hebrew and, and both Aramaic are written, there, there's not a bunch of vowels and spaces and periods and all the things that we're used to. The, all these letters would have just run right next to each other. So some say, well, that's why they couldn't have, have figured it out. Um, it it might have been that they knew what these words were. They just had no idea what, what sense to make of them. Um, uh, last week, um, Pastor Scott's uh, nephew came to Upward with us, and uh, maybe some of you got to meet him. Um, Pastor Scott's nephew, Ivan, uh, he's a Ph.D. student at Stanford, um, and he's a, he's a real rocket scientist. Um, and so when I asked him, um, so what is it that you're studying, um, and what are you trying to do? He, he said, well, I'm studying plasma, and then he began to say a bunch of other words, and I'm relatively confident they were English words. But I have no idea what they meant. I, I didn't even. I, I can't even tell you what his degree is. That, that was that complicated. And then he started to describe what exactly he was studying, and I was just like. That's great. That sounds fantastic. Um, he, I might have heard the words he was saying, and I might have even been able to tell you he's, he's, speaking my, he's speaking a language that I'm supposed to know, but I have no way of comprehending what it is that he's talking about right now. That might have been what's going on here. Um, because you have these words, mene, mene, tekel, and parson, and here's what they mean. Then Daniel says, this is the interpretation, all right? Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And it's repeated twice. We think that's for emphasis. God has certainly numbered. That's the idea of Mene. He's numbered the days of your kingdom and he's brought it to an end. Who's the one in charge of Belshazzar's kingdom? It's not Belshazzar. There is a God who is sovereign over all. So he says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You see, there is a God who is sovereign over justice there were literally thousands of people who would have cried out that Belshazzar was being unjust, that they were being treated unfairly. But there was a God who could weigh him, and there was a God who would find out that he was wanting. And the last word, Perez, he says, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. We think that last word is kind of a, a pun because it has the idea of both divided and Persian um, together. The, the point is, that Daniel that Daniel is making and that God is making is Belshazzar times up it's over you have been you have been weighed you've been measured and the God who is over all has decided that it's time for your kingdom to end what happens Belshazzar gives the command, Daniel's clothed with purple and a chain of gold is put around his neck and a proclamation is made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So that whole, like, you can keep your gifts. Remember, Belshazzar's still the king. He's going to do whatever he wants. Um, Daniel's going, I don't want this. They do it anyway. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. You see, God is sovereign over all things the city of Babylon had not been stormed by invaders in over 1,000 years. It it had a wall around it that was reportedly 330 feet high. It had over 100 fortified gates. And historians um, argue about what exactly happened. Um, Apparently, historians arguing is nothing new. Um, They've been doing this for a long, long time. Um, But The story that seems to be repeated the most uh, is that the Persians actually diverted the waters of the Euphrates um, to an old channel. And so it reduced the water level that was flowing into the city um, and and the gates that were protecting that water level. The Persians actually waded in through that lowered river and came up inside the city, right? Um, According to Herodotus, it was, the water came up to their thighs, but their whole army came in through um, a gate that had been underwater previously. I mean, this is really cool. Like We're talking like Navy SEAL team stuff, right? right? And the fact of the matter is that all of this is going on while Daniel's giving his prophecy. Right? They were, they'd been lowering that water level, and they all snuck in that night. You say, oh, that was good. I was very lucky for Daniel that of all things he would give this prophecy on this night. Obviously, no. This, God has ordained that this is the night that a hand will appear. God knew that this would be the night that Belshazzar would take um, his gold and silver vessels and he would blaspheme with them. And God had numbered Belshazzar's days to that very night. Because God is sovereign over justice. This kingdom was numbered and they didn't even know it. Now, do you, want, do you want justice? God will provide it in his time. He is not unaware. And the reality is, without a God of justice, you cannot even make sense of this fallen world. Concepts like justice break down without a sovereign God to define them. Uh, I've been going out on Fridays with Scott Brandon and um, doing some sidewalk counseling as well as preaching outside of a Planned Parenthood in Fresno. And this last week, uh, we were out there, and this guy came up because he wanted to argue with Scott, uh, who handled it really well. But this guy, this guy started saying, um, "There is actually, there's no such thing as moral absolutes. I don't even know why you guys are wasting your time out here, because there is no right and there is no wrong. And, and, and Scott said, So you're telling me there are no moral absolutes. And the guy was like, yeah. And he was like, now are you absolutely sure about that? The guy's like, yes, there's no such thing as right and wrong. And Scott's like, but you're arguing on the basis of what you think is right and wrong. And the guy's like, uh, uh. Anyway, so they started getting into this conversation. Um, The guy became more and more heated. Even though Scott was speaking just a normal conversational voice the whole time, the guy began to get more and more upset until the point that he full-on, like veins popping out of his forehead, red in the face, began to curse and to swear until he, till he stormed off. Uh, because what he didn't want to face is that, is that without a God, any worldview that claims that some things are right and some things are wrong inherently break down. He wanted to say there is no moral absolute, but he wanted us to be ruled by his thinking that said we should all go away. Right? Without a God, the concept of justice, the concept of right and wrong, it completely falls apart. And what we need is to let our view of the world be more influenced by the character of God than by the cable news. Right? We need need to let how we look at life and how we look at what is even just and what is unjust, we need to be informed by a God. A God who determines what is right and wrong. A God who is sovereign over all. And what that's going to mean is allowing him to be sovereign over when and how he hands out his justice. I said at the beginning, you and I are poor judges of what is just. we, We are poor judges of when that justice should be handed out. But God is perfect in all his ways. He's even perfect in all his time. You can say, why did he let Belshazzar, who was a wicked king on a number of levels, why did he let it go on as long as he did? And the, the best answer that I know of to those kind of questions is God is God, and you are not, and I am not. Why should we, the ones who are formed, tell God what he should be doing and not doing? What we should be doing is worshiping a God who is perfect in all of his ways and recognizing that he is in control, not just of, of one life, not just of one country, but of this entire planet. God has it all under control, even if you can't see it, and even if it doesn't look like it's right to you. There is a God who is sovereign over justice. Okay? Okay. God is also sovereign over rescue. And so um, let's see the contrast. Chapter 5 is a chapter of judgment and a chapter of justice. Chapter 6 is a chapter of rescue. And it's a story that's familiar to all of us. We no doubt have heard it if you've been in in church, if you've been in Sunday school. You know the story of Daniel chapter number 6. But I want to make sure that we don't miss what's really in this story. Because I think it's easy for us to do. Daniel 6 is a story of God's sovereignty over rescue. You have a new king and a new kingdom. Darius the Mede receives the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And chapter 6, verse number 1, we move into his kingdom, the kingdom of Darius. This is the Medes and the Persians. And he sets over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. He's setting up his government. Um, Also, don't don't forget that this is exactly in fulfillment of um, what what God prophesied through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Do you remember that dream he had of the statue and it had the different, the head of gold? And this is is all coming exactly true because God is in control of human history. So don't forget, God said that this was was gonna happen before it ever happened, right? So anyway, so he's setting up his kingdom. Um, Daniel becomes distinguished above all the other high officials because an excellent spirit is in him and the king plans to set him over the whole kingdom. This is pretty remarkable. At this point in Daniel's life, we assume he's somewhere in his 80s. All right? So if he's, if he's taken to Babylon um, when he was anything close to a teenager, if you look at historically the timeline, by the time the Medes and Persians come, Daniel's somewhere in his 80s. We think he's probably 83 or 84. So shout out to all of you in your 80s because that's Daniel. All right, Daniel chapter number 6. Um, I don't know why, um, but for some reason, maybe it was the flannel graph that ruined me, but for some reason when I think of Daniel in the lion's den, I think of this young guy. Right, Daniel's an 80-year-old man in what's about to happen in Daniel chapter number 6, okay? Um, And so he's becoming distinguished, and so what happens um, is what always happens when someone is doing well. There are other people who get jealous, right? And so you have all these other guys who are jealous, um, and they don't appreciate that Daniel is being exalted, and they can't find any reason for complaint or fault in verse number 4, because Daniel was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So these guys come up with a plan. They say, we cannot find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Isn't that an amazing thing about Daniel? They say the only way we are ever going to trip this guy up is if it has something to do with the law of his God because he is upright and he has integrity and he's honest. He has all these things. He doesn't have these skeletons in the closet. This is a sh- for, for over 80 years, Daniel has lived a, a God-honoring life. And these guys say, well, the only thing we can do is try to find something um, about, about the law of his God. And it says in verse number six that these high officials, they come together by agreement to the king. And you're going to see that expression by agreement um, throughout this passage. These guys deliberately plan the downfall of Daniel. Right? They are out to get him. This is premeditated. They come to the king, and they flatter him, and, and they say, uh, King Darius wants you to live forever. Um, we have all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. They say, King, you should pass this law that nobody can pray to any god or to any man except for you. Um, why, would, why would King Darius agree to this? Well, um, I mean, for this length of time, he gets to feel like he's as powerful as God. Everyone's directing their prayers and their worship to him. Uh, he also realizes this is probably a good move for his kingdom, right? Think about it. He's a new king. Uh, he's got new territory, and he's trying to unify all of these people who, if they revolt, he's in, he's in serious trouble. So if he eliminates a whole bunch of various religions and he forces everyone to focus just on him, he's going to solidify his power base, right? This is a good political move. Uh, this is a good personal move. Uh, Darius goes this is a great idea I'm going to pass this law and nobody can pray except to me um, he's walking right into this trap verse number 10 when Daniel knew that the document had been signed he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem and so he got down on his, on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously Daniel is unfazed he does exactly what he's been doing which is to pray. And so these men come by agreement. There it is in verse number 11 again. They come by agreement. They, they knew when he was going to be praying, so, so they wait, they, and they come by agreement, and they find Daniel making petition and plea before his God. That word found has more of the idea of they broke the doors down and burst in, and they got him, right? It wasn't just, oh, hey, oh there's Daniel praying. Well, that, was, that was a good thing we found him. It's like they, they jumped in on him. They went, aha, you're praying. We got you. And then they go to the king. Uh, King, king, uh, didn't you say that no one should pray to anyone except for you? Um, And if they did, they should be cast in the den of lions. These guys are out for Daniel. They're not just going to remind the king of what he said. They're out to remind him of the punishment because they want Daniel dead. Right? Um, What they haven't factored in is that there is a God who is sovereign over rescue. And the king said, uh, it's, it stands fast according to the law of the and Persians. I can't change it. And they answered and they said, oh, good, because Daniel, we found him praying. And they said, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. You know, that's exactly what they said about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego earlier. They said, these guys pay no attention to you. They say the same thing about Daniel. He pays no attention to you, O king. It's almost as if Daniel is paying more attention to a higher power than you, king, which, of course, is crazy, Uh, they say, he's not paying attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And when the king hears this, he's distressed, and he tries to figure out all these ways that he can rescue Daniel. He goes through all this, what can I do? Uh, It says he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. And the reality is that Darius, who is the king over this entire empire, he does not have enough power to rescue Daniel. You see, there are lots of people that have an overinflated sense of how much power they have. There are people in government that have a misunderstanding of how much power they have. You and I as individuals often misunderstand, and we think we have greater power than we do. This king doesn't even have the power to rescue Daniel, but Daniel has a God who does have the power to rescue him. Right? So they, they come back. There it is again, verse number 15. They come back by agreement. These guys have just been plotting and scheming this whole time. They said to the king, King... You can't change it. So the king commands in verse number 16, they bring Daniel, they throw him into the den of lions. This is what the king says to Daniel. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. He says, I hope your God rescues you. They bring a stone, they lay it on the mouth of the den, the king seals it with his signet, um, and with the signet of his Lord so that nothing can be changed. And then this is really interesting about Darius. It says in verse number 18, the king went to his palace and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Here's here's the king of an incredibly powerful empire, and he spends the night concerned about Daniel's well-being. He's not eating, and he's not sleeping. And at break of dawn, in verse number 19, as soon as daylight comes, the king gets up, and he goes in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. you see how much Darius is—he genuinely wanted Daniel to be rescued. But no matter how sincere he was in his desire, he was not capable of doing it. But God was capable of doing it. Because when he calls out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions, Daniel's answer brings glory to God. Because instead of him just hearing the roar of a happy and well-fed lion— What he hears is Daniel's voice. I hope I didn't ruin it for any of you kids, but uh, Daniel's alive. So there's the end of the story. Uh, But Daniel the lion's end, he's alive. He hasn't been harmed. And, And he says, in fact, my God sent an angel and he shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O oh king, I have done no harm. And the king goes from being sad to being exceedingly glad. And so they bring Daniel out. Um, and Daniel is taken up and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. All right? God was sovereign over the rescue of Daniel. He kept him alive physically. All right? All right. Um, the part of the story that we don't often tell on the Sunday school side of things uh, is that King Darius, uh, he is just as um, ruthless as the previous Babylonian kings. And so he, he gathers together all those guys who have accused Daniel. He not only gets them, but he also brings their entire families and they throw them all into the den of lions. And it says, before all of these people reached the bottom of the lion's den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Now, that's, you're know, like, do we have to talk about that part? That's kind of gross, and, and that's kind of hideous, and that's kind of, that's kind of nasty. Um, why does it say it broke all their bones in pieces? Why, why that? Why doesn't it just say they threw them in, and the lions ate them, you know, the end? That's too bad. Um, because this is an echo of the Psalms. Breaking their bones in pieces is something that God promises to do to the wicked. That exact expression of breaking their bones in pieces. You see, God is the one who is sovereign over judgment and over rescue. I think there's a reason it doesn't just say, and they ate them. Because even God was standing in just judgment over those who had opposed him and his servant. Now look what Darius writes to all the peoples. He, he sends this out to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell on all the earth. He says, peace be multiplied to you. In verse 25, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Now, good luck enforcing that, but it's still the right sentiment what he's about to say. Because this is what he says about the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. You see, Darius got it. God is the one who is sovereign over rescue. He is sovereign over deliverance. He is able to do this. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. I think it is, it is such a shame that there are many times that we have reduced this story To a story of Daniel's bravery. Daniel chapter 6 is not about a brave Daniel. Daniel is not even supposed to be the focus of our attention in Daniel chapter 6. We can be thankful for a life that was God honoring. It's amazing that he trusted God. It's funny, I don't know why bravery was the thing that was picked. That doesn't even show up in this passage. It says that he trusted God, if anything. If we're going to moralize it, we should say, um, you know, be trusting like Daniel, but instead we say be brave like Daniel. Um, Bravery is not the point. Um, the interesting thing is that Daniel rejected the praise of kings when he was alive. Uh, I'm pretty sure he'd be upset about him becoming the hero post-mortem, all right? So Daniel was never intended to be the hero, and he doesn't present himself as the hero. The hero is a God who is able to rescue and able to save. And if you think about it from an even bigger perspective, um, this letter of Daniel comes to God's people as they are returning from exile right? Um, The the next king, uh, Cyrus, he's actually going to be the one that God uses to bring his people back to the land of Israel. And what God's people need is a reminder that God is the one who can rescue them. God is the one that keeps them safe and secure. Think about what's happening, not not just in the moment of Daniel, but think about the people that are reading the letter of Daniel. And they're being reminded, wait, God is the one who sent us into exile because he was punishing us. God's the one that exalted Nebuchadnezzar. God's the one that brought Nebuchadnezzar down. God's the one that rescued Daniel. God can help us while we're here in Jerusalem with no walls. Um, God can help us as we rebuild this temple. God can help us as we rebuild this nation because God is the one who's able to rescue. This would have been hugely encouraging to the Israelites as a nation. And it should be hugely encouraging and instructive to us. Think about how this can encourage you. God is bigger than man's plans. He is bigger than man's opposition. He is bigger than the rule of nature, like the fact that lions should eat people when they're hungry. God is greater than all of these things. God is sovereign over judgment, and he's also sovereign over rescue. He is reliable. You can trust him. So as we conclude this message and we ask ourselves, so what? What? What are we supposed to do with with a message like this? Um, I want to encourage you this morning that you can trust personal justice to a sovereign God. You can trust personal justice to a sovereign God. Romans 12 tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is a God who is completely aware of every injustice done to every one of his creatures. And every injustice done to you, everyone made in his image. And there's a God who's perfectly capable of working out the right kind of vengeance. His wrath is reliable. So have you personally been wronged by somebody? You've, been, you've suffered some kind of injustice personally? Um, that hurts. And you might feel the sting of it even right now as I say these words. There is a God who he is trustworthy to bring about personal justice. Can, can you leave vengeance to him? Or do you want to take it in your own hands? We, we are used to taking vengeance in our own hands our own ways from the youngest of ages. Uh, unless my kids are the only one when something is taken from them that they want back and it leads to a little uh, fistfight in the room, or um, the toy that was taken from someone gets used as a weapon over their head, or all those things that happen when you're a kid. Um, we get a little more refined when we get older in how exactly we try to go about getting our own justice, or in some cases we don't. But uh, the personal justice is something that you can leave to a perfect God. If we broaden out from the personal side of justice... Um, we, as a people, should value justice because it's the character of our God, right? So when it comes to us being personally wronged, we need to learn how to trust in a God who works out justice. When it comes to us seeing justice around us, injustice, whether it's in our families or in our community or in our world, we ought to be bothered by that because we know that we have a God who demands justice, who, who will bring it out, right? It's the character of God that things be right. And so we ought to be offended, we ought to be upset when there is injustice. We ought to pursue what is right being done in our homes and in our church and in our community. When we do that, though, thirdly, we should define justice by the word of God. Though Shazer thought he could live life without recognizing the one true God. He thought he could tell um, what was good and what was bad, and he was completely wrong. because he wasn't defining reality by the character of God. He had exalted himself. If we want to know what is justice, then we need to turn to God's word and God's character to teach us, all right? If we're going to self-define what justice is, we will get ourselves and our community in all kinds of problems. Justice is what is told to us by the word of God. It's his character that teaches us what is right and wrong and how to care about that right and wrong being offended. Speaking of the right and the wrong, I want to encourage you with this message to do right, even if it will lead to your harm. Trusting that the sovereign God will deliver when he wants to. Daniel did have an opportunity to either do right or do wrong. What Daniel did was he lived the truth that he knew. My God is sovereign. It's right to obey him. And no matter the consequences, I will do what's right. Right? We should do right, even if it will lead to our harm. Have you ever had the feeling that you'll be trapped if you do the right thing? You're scared to do it because you think, this is going to work out badly for me. If I am honest in this situation, it's going to work out to hurt me. Um, This is not going to be good for my business if I do the right thing. It's going to work out badly. We need to do right, even when we're afraid it will work out badly, trusting that there's a sovereign God who will deliver when he wants to. I don't think it's hard for any of us to imagine anymore the day when it will be political or relational or even financial suicide to stand for morality. What will you do on that day? You ought to trust a sovereign God who will rescue you when he wants to, but you ought to do what's right. Do right and let God deliver as he chooses. First Peter reminds us that even if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. Right? Here's a perspective for us in all the doom and gloom of Um, stuff that's happening. Even if we were to suffer for righteousness sake, we'll be blessed. Your options are to either be blessed or to be blessed. So you're in good shape because if you suffer for righteousness sake, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't suffer, that'll be a blessing. So good news, you're going to be blessed. All right. He says, have no fear of them and don't be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Right? It's better for us, if that's what God wants, to suffer for doing right. And what is the encouragement for us when it comes to suffering for doing the right thing? It's the next verse. The next verse is 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ, for Christ also suffered sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right? We should do what's right, even if we're afraid of the consequences. Really quickly, um, I want to provide something. I I have not probably shared this with you um, from the pulpit before, although it's something I talk about, like in personal counseling um, and things. But I want to give you four anchoring truths um, that were, were given to me by a teacher in college um, that have stuck with me, and I want to encourage you with them as you think about trusting yourself to a sovereign God. Um, these are four anchoring truths for tough times. Uh, they actually come from, uh, so Jeremy Morris was just here, his wife's father-in-law, uh, his wife's dad, his father-in-law is the one who um, taught me these. Number one, God's love for me is unchanging. You can rely on this truth. God's love for me is unchanging. You can go to somewhere like Romans 8. And you could read, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If that day comes true for you where you feel like you are constantly being persecuted and you're in danger and there is sword, God's love has not stopped for you because God's love for you is unchanging. Secondly, God's purpose for me is Christ likeness. Again in Romans 8, we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, which is, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. So no matter what injustice you see in your world, no matter whether you feel like God is rescuing or not rescuing, his purpose for you is Christ-likeness. If he allows his people to be martyred, he has given them perfect Christ-likeness. Because in that moment, uh, they will be free from sin. When he freed Daniel from the den of lions, his his purpose was still Daniel's sanctification and his own glory. So God's love is unchanging. His purpose for me is Christ-likeness. Thirdly, God's word to me is the final right answer. No matter what else happens in our world, no matter what else happens um, that threatens your idea of God's justice or of God's deliverance, you need to come back to the word of God is the final right answer over and over again. It is right. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable, and it's right. So hang on to your conviction that God's word is the final right answer. Lastly, God's grace for me is sufficient. All right, God's love for me is unchanging. His purpose for me is Christ-likeness. His word is the final right answer, and his grace is sufficient. These are things that are true about a sovereign God that you can rely on. Now, I know in this message, I have primarily spoken to those who are already Christians. But I want to talk to you if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ. And I want to appeal to you to not be lulled into complacency about your own sin. You might say, I don't really follow Christ and I have a variety of sin in my life and bad things have never happened to me. My life is fine. Don't mistake God's patience for his ignoring of your sin because God is a just judge And while he is incredibly patient, he will always perfectly punish sin. What you need to do is is not just assume on God's kindness, but turn to him in repentance, because he is a God who can rescue. He rescued Daniel physically, but you, he can rescue you spiritually. In fact, he's the only one that can do it. He's the only one with enough power to give life to you, to give you enough faith to believe. Just like... God could deliver Daniel physically, he can rescue you from the jaws of hell. And he's the only one that can. So I want to appeal to you. What Daniel says is true. If you're an unbeliever, it tells you that you should run to this just God for rescue. if you're a believer this morning, we need to continue to let what God's word says about God shape how we look at the world around us, how we understand God himself. He is a just judge he is also perfectly sovereign and capable of great acts of deliverance.